Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Okay, great. Um, and as Brett mentioned, the uh, event today, the Symposium on Voting and Election Reforms, is sponsored by the, and I'm sorry, we don't have an updated logo yet, but it's now officially the Bagwell, uh, Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity. Um, you can find our webpage by going to coleskollege.com slash econop, or on Facebook, just do a search for at econop, and you can find the center's uh, Facebook page. Um, my name is Timothy Matthews. I'm a professor here in the Economics, Finance, and Quantitative Analysis Department. Um, I'm also the director of the center, and uh, the first talk of today's symposium is titled Individual versus Social Preferences and Choice. And while I will get into voting in this 20-minute talk by the end, I'm going to kind of have some preliminary groundwork that I'm laying here. Um, So first, why would, I guess first of all, why would economists um, in the economics department be organizing this session on voting? Isn't that the purview of the political scientists, yeah, in some sense it is, but economists kind of like to you know, take over all these different areas of social sciences because you know, we think our approach to studying these things is well, maybe not better, but gives a, a different perspective. Okay, And to begin to see where I'm coming from, a lot of microeconomics especially, really I would say all of microeconomics, comes down to individuals making choices. Okay, Individuals making choices in a world of scarcity individuals making choices when they're faced with constraints. Okay, so constrained decision making. Um, You have limits on the options available to you, and then you have, you know, preferences, things you like and don't like, and of those available options, you want to make the best possible choice for you as a decision maker. So a simple example, you know, you go to a restaurant, uh, there's different items on the menu, the choice set would be what options are available to you. Okay, so maybe there's three items on the menu, Uh, steak, lobster, or pasta. Okay, that's your choice set, those three options. We then talk about consumer preferences, a statement of kind of the likes or dislikes. And here, for this example, really all we need is kind of an ordinal preference. How do you order them? You know, nothing about intensity of preferences here. Just which one do you like the most? Which one do you like the least? So, for instance, you know, suppose I have the steak as my preferred first choice. My second choice would be the lobster. The third choice would be my pasta. As a rational decision maker, the way that an economist would say you should look at this issue is, hey, consider all your available options, pick the one that makes you as happy as possible. So if those are my preferences, I would choose the steak. And this is all well and good for an individual, right? But what about if we have groups of people making decisions? Okay, so groups of people making choices. Well, first, I would say it's really no different if we can each have different things. Right? So now James and Kerwin and I go out to dinner, we go to the restaurant. If we could each choose to have a different meal, 
There's really no problem here, right? I'll pick the steak if that's my preferred choice. James will have the pasta if that's his preferred choice. Kerwin will have the lobster, right? And we're all happy. But what if, what if for some reason we were all restricted to having the same meal, okay? Well, in that case, we can't all be as happy as possible, right? Whichever meal we pick for all three of us, whether it's the steak, the pasta, or the lobster, only one of us is going to get his first choice. Beyond that, whichever meal we pick, be it the steak, the lobster, or the pasta, one of us is stuck with their least preferred choice. Right? So this is kind of a trickier issue to try to figure out then how can we as a group make this collective decision? Okay. Well, maybe you're thinking right now, well, geez, why would that ever be the case? That seems kind of silly. Why would you be forced to have the same meal at the restaurant? But a lot of things that we could think of as you know, public policy decisions have this flavor, right? You know, why would we ever all have to have the same thing? Well, let's think about, say, our policy towards North Korea, right? And maybe we have three options on the table. Okay, we could in, you know, do some preemptive airstrikes. We could impose some harsher economic sanctions or we can maintain the status quo, okay? So, you know, there's some pictures. There's the airstrikes at the top. There's the economic sanctions. There's a happy Kim Jong-un if we just go with the status quo, right? And really, all I did here with these ordinal preferences for us, and I have no idea what your guys' preferences are, even on the dinners, beyond the fact that I know James is a vegetarian, so I gave him the pasta dish. But for airstrikes or policy towards North Korea, I have no clue, okay? But really all I did here was replace steaks with airstrikes, replaced lobster with sanctions, and replaced pasta with status quo. So it's really the same choice, right? Whichever one we pick, none of us, not all, Whichever one we pick, only one of us gets our first choice. Whichever one we pick as a group, uh, one of us gets our last choice, right? Or similarly, choice of president, right? There's no way that we could each have a different president, right? There's no way that I can live in a U.S. where Donald Trump's president and Kerwin can live in the U.S. where Hillary Clinton's president and hopefully you know who that third guy is up there, Gary Johnson, okay? And James can live in a world where Gary Johnson's president. No, we have to, as a group, pick one president. Okay, so these issues of kind of collective or group decisions are definitely relevant, right? So how can we make or how should we go about making such collective or group decisions as a society? And the way that academics within economics look at it and think about it might seem kind of abstract, especially the first times we're kind of talking through things and kind of might seem mathematical, but I think it's a very insightful way to think about it, okay? So the approach we're going to take is that we somehow have to come up with what we could think of as a social choice mechanism, okay? Another way to kind of describe that is some sort of you know, preference aggregation method. So we have different people in society with different preferences, and we hopefully maybe want to take their preferences, their likes and dislikes into account, so it's kind of almost like a mathematical function, right? We take all the different varied preferences, we somehow put it into this mathematical function, and out the other end, hopefully, spits out you know, kind of a rank order of the different options for society as a whole. And then if we have that, the good social choice would be to pick the one that society, given these preferences, given this preference aggregation method, the choice or option that society ranks most highly, okay? 
So again, now we're thinking here for my presentation exclusively in the world of kind of discrete options, okay? A, B, C, D, E, different options, and we have to pick one of them, we have to rank all of them. And for my talk, we're only looking at ordinal preferences. Which do you like first, second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever, okay? I'm not even getting into the realm, the more complicated realm of intensity of preferences, okay? Just kind of ordinal preferences. So we have different people, different types of people based on their ordinal preferences. The social preferences then, we should hope, would be determined by somehow accounting for how many people in society are of each of these different types. Okay? And kind of that's where we're going here. But a point that I think is worth illustrating at the onset here is that the varied types of preferences we can have the types of different preferences the people in society can have tends to really just kind of blow up really quickly, even when we have what would seemingly be relatively few options. So let's think about this choice for president. And now here I have the three candidates that were on the ballots in all 50 states, right? You know, if you go to the ballot in a particular state, there might have been even more on your ballot. You know, Jill Stein and, you know, Evan McMullen or whoever else, right? Let's just think about the different preferences that people could have over three options, okay? Well, clearly you could be a Donald supporter, right? Or a Hillary supporter. Or a Gary supporter, right? But if you are a Donald supporter, you could have either Hillary or Gary as your second option, right? So there's really two different, and then whichever you have is your second, the, the remaining is your third. But there's really two different types of Donald supporters, right? There's Donald supporters that have Hillary as their second choice and Gary as their third. There's Donald supporters that have Gary as their second choice and Hillary as their third. And likewise for Hillary and Gary. So we end up with, with three choices or options six different types of voters, six different you know, types of preferences that people could have. And what I want you to see is that this number, the number of different types you could have, kind of explodes very quickly as we have what would still seemingly be like relatively few options, which I'm pointing out because it kind of then makes us appreciate kind of how complicated or complex this issue of social choice becomes, right? Because, geez, if there's you know, thousands of different types of preferences people could have, that makes it a much harder decision versus a choice of, hey, there's two or three choices on the option or on the menu. So what if, what if we had, say, seven options? Seven still doesn't even seem like that big of a number, right? How many different types would there be, types of preferences would there be if we had seven options? And the answer, and then I'll work out this in a second, but the answer is seven exclamation point, okay? Seven exclamation point, right? The most recent concert I saw was a Fall Out Boy, okay? Uh, my daughter and I went with her friend, so here's my daughter here, Madison, my older daughter, and her friend Katie, who lives down the street. Um, Katie's dad and I went, took the two girls to see Fall Out Boy at Phillips Arena. Uh, so there I am, good KSU employee with my Kennesaw hat on in the picture up there. Um, Fall Out Boy, once they, released, once they released their new album, Mania, in spring of 18, will have seven studio albums. Suppose the fans of Fall Out Boy wanted to somehow rank the albums collectively from best to worst, okay? <clears throat> and I don't know all the album names, but I put the you know, years they were released there. Um, so the 18 album, then the 15 release, the 13 release, the 08 release, the 07 release, the 05 release, and the 03 release. What are the different types of fans that the band could have, okay? 
Well, one possibility is you just rank them in reverse chronological of when they were released, right? And we'll call that a type one fan, okay? Well, if I just switch the order of uh, person one and person, or sorry, choice one and choice two, we get a different type, right? If someone just switches and says, well, no, my favorite is the you know, 15 release, and then my second favorite's the 18 release, but everything else is the same, that's a different type, okay? Asking the two girls to kind of speculate on the few songs from the 18 release that they've heard so far, I asked them to give me each their ranking, and my daughter said, okay, the 18 release, the 13 release, the 15, the 07, the 05, the 08, the 03, and her friend said 18, 08, 13, 15, 03, 07, 05. Those are different types, right? All the way up to type 5040, okay? So that seven exclamation point was not me saying the number seven with a whole lot of excitement. Rather it was, for those that have had a math class, you might kind of saw, right? Uh, Sean, I'm sure you knew what I meant. It was seven factorial, which means seven times six times five times four times three times two times, two times one, 5,040. So with only seven options, we can have 5,040 different types of fans. And to see how this further explodes, Right? The Braves just, within the past what, year, opened up a nice new park, uh, SunTrust Park, about 10 minutes down the road. One of the first big concerts there was Metallica. Metallica has 10 albums. How many different types of Metallica fans could there be based on ordinal rankings of 10 different studio albums? 10 factorial. There can be 3,628 800 different types of Metallica fans based on ordinal ref, uh, preferences. SunTrust Park holds a little over 41,000 people. Metallica could sell out Tr SunTrust Park for 88 consecutive nights before mathematically we know that they have to be playing to a fan that has the same preferences as somebody else that they played to previously. They could start playing tonight and play through Sunday, February 11, 2018 before they have a repeat fan, okay? The other big concerts they had, they had at SunTrust Park so far was Billy Joel, 13 studio albums. With 13 choices, we get over 6.2 billion, with a B, different types of fans, potentially. Billy Joel could start playing SunTrust Park tonight and sell it out for 151,328 consecutive nights before we know for sure that he's playing to a fan that has the same preferences as somebody else he played to. That's Friday, March 12th, 2,432, okay? That's a really rich preference space. So I think we can hopefully begin to appreciate the task that we're asking this social choice mechanism to accomplish, right? We can have you know, all these different preferences over just, you know, say, seven options, 5,000 different types of people. And then in a world with 320 million voters, geez, we have different percentages of each different type. How do we aggregate all that information into a good decision or choice? That's the daunting task that we have here. So again, a social choice mechanism is what we're asking to do that work, okay? A social choice mechanism maps individual preferences into social preferences, which then yields a social choice. So let's go back to our simple only three options, six different types voter example, 
right? Maybe these are our individual preferences. Maybe there are 20 million type 1 voters, okay, 25 million type 4 voters, 4 million type 5 voters, and those are their ordinal preferences. And I'll just let you read the other numbers. I won't bother you know, reading through them since they take me longer. But what we're trying to come up here, come up with here, is a social choice mechanism. Okay, I'll kind of represent it by this you know, shaded in gray arrow there, that somehow takes these individual preferences and the different numbers of people that have them into account and gives us a social ordering and then a social choice. And hopefully, if we choose a good mechanism, it's a choice that you know, we won't all necessarily like, okay? You know, we have to pick one of these three, and there are people, you know, type three and type six voters in this example that have Donald as their last choice, right? But in some sense, if we pick a good social choice mechanism, it would give us the option that objectively we would kind of view as the best choice given our preferences, okay? So what makes a good social choice mechanism? And you know, here it's kind of almost the way that economists think about it a lot is almost like an axiomatic approach. We lay out some general properties that we think a good social choice mechanism should satisfy. Um, you know, Chris, this is kind of in the direction of things we were discussing briefly in the hotel lobby this morning. Um, you know, seemingly good properties of a social choice mechanism. We would want it to be complete. Okay, we want to have a complete ordinal ranking of all the options available from best to worst. We would hope that it should be perhaps transitive, meaning that if A is preferred to B and B is preferred to C, what should that imply? Well, if I like steak more than I like lobster and I like lobster more than I like pasta, as an individual, it would seem only reasonable that I should like steak more than pasta, right? That's what transitive means. If you like A more than B and B more than C, you should also like A more than C. Unanimous. We would hope that it would be unanimous. If everybody agrees that A is better than B, hopefully our rule will rank A above B. Non-dictatorial. The social preferences should not always be simply Rob's preferences. Right? Um, you know, I guess Rob might like that, right? But the rest of us might have some problems with it, right? If everybody else agrees that Donald's the worst choice, but Rob really likes Donald, we should hope that our social choice mechanism doesn't always pick whoever Rob happens to choose the most. And we also would hope that it would satisfy a property called that it should be independent of irrelevant alternatives. Right? Suppose I went to the restaurant and I said, you know, the waiter says, oh, we have you know, steak or lobster tonight, which do you want? And I say lobster. And then he says, oh, well, by the way, we also have pasta. Okay, in that case, I'll have steak. That would just seem weird, right? It would seem like the relative ranking of A to B should not be changed once we either introduce C as an option or take C away as an option. And that's what independent of irrelevant alternatives says. So these are some properties that we should hopefully want our social choice mechanism to satisfy. So I promised I'd get to voting, okay? So, and voting seems like a, a good way to do this, right? Democratic process, open, everybody gets a voice. Well, the first thing I want you to, to recognize is when we just use the term generically voting, there are a whole lot of different voting rules or systems we could have. Right? One option is maybe we determine a social preference between two options based upon majority vote in a, say, pairwise election. So we put, you know, steak against lobster, which one gets the more votes? And we'll say that, you know, if, for instance, 
a vote between steak and lobster. Hey, I'll vote for steak. James will vote for steak. Kerwin votes for lobster. You're outvoted two to one. Okay, so if we go with that rule, that says our society prefers steak to lobster. If we have a vote with the same preferences here between pasta and steak, well, now pasta wins two to one, right? If we have a vote between lobster and pasta, well, now lobster wins. So what does this violate? Well, it violates that property of transitivity, right? Our social preferences between any two options, as determined by majority rule, revealed steak is better than lobster, okay? Pasta is better than steak. In a reasonable world where preferences are transitive, that should imply pasta is better than lobster, but no, when we pair them up against each other, lobster defeats pasta. What about, say, plurality voting? Okay, and now maybe we get a complete social ranking determined just by the number of votes for an option. So let's go back to this example. What if we had a vote between these three candidates and said, we're going to make the decision based on just your popular vote? Right, which first, let me point out, that's not what we do in the US. That's not the mechanism we have, but what if we did? Well, given these numbers, we would get this ranking. Hillary's preferred to Donald is preferred to Gary. Okay. But now what if instead with these same numbers, and those numbers in that first example, those are the actual national popular vote totals uh, that occurred in that election. I had to speculate about second choices, so I don't know for sure that this next part is true, okay? But if we had those different types broken down, as I have in this example, if we pair Donald against Hillary head-to-head, -head, even in popular vote here, he would win. So what does this violate? Well, it violates that independence of irrelevant alternatives, okay? Eliminating the irrelevant option of Gary, who's not the first choice, right? switches the preference between Hillary and Donald. So where does this leave us? Well, actually, the big, one of the big results in this field um, when economists look at this is something called Arrow's Impossibility Theorem, named after the Nobel Prize-winning economist Kenneth Arrow, who mathematically showed that any crazy social choice mechanism you can dream up, not just voting, okay, but anything, Anything that you could dream up has to violate at least one of those five properties, okay? Um, and again, very mathematical and technical. I guess that's the kind of the, the simplest way that I could kind of state it for uh, the sake of this discussion. And that's kind of a troubling result, right? Because all those properties kind of seemed reasonable. What it then suggests is really, I would say, that it, our task becomes a search for, say, a second best choice, right? Because nothing's perfect. So the final point I'll leave you with is I don't want you, you know, this might, might kind of seem kind of gloomy and doomy, right? I don't want the takeaway to be, well, hey, democracy and voting is never good. In fact, I think it is good to have a system where people have a say, but also recognize the limitations. Also begin to recognize how the voting rules and system can impact the social choice we get, okay? Um, so I'll leave you with this quote from Churchill. It's been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Okay. Um, so at this point, I'll hand it over to, to James Boudreau, uh, one of our visiting faculty in the econ department, also affiliated faculty with the center, who's going to talk a bit more about kind of voting in more specificity from an economics perspective. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.